Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Chad Stahelski, a talented filmmaker who's dedicated the last seven years of his career directing all three chapters of the John Wick franchise. In our conversation, we dive deep into exploring Chad's approach as an action director. From the elaborate planning required to execute the film's mind-bending stunt sequences, the creative role that Keanu Reeves plays in each of the movies, what to expect from John Wick Chapter 4, and much more. If you'd like to hear new content, hit that subscribe button to find all previous episodes from Soundstage Access. But now, without further ado, Let's go to our conversation. Chad, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's really a pleasure. You know, we're going to be focusing on your creative style as a director. So I thought we would begin talking about the origin and evolution of the John Wick franchise. About a year this to say, quote, the original script for John Wick 1 couldn't have been more different. After casting Keanu, we brought the age of the character way down, the body count way up, turned a 10-year-old German Shepherd into a puppy, and because of our love of Greek mythology, we came up with the idea of making this a modern-day myth. John's suit is like his armor, his gun really a sword." Close quote. So, as a director, you always talk about the fact that tone is the most important storytelling element that you should have control over. Looking at the evolution of the franchise seven years after you first began, now that all the puppy killing jokes for sequels are out of the way, in regards to emotion, scope, and action design, how do you think your own understanding of the John Wick myth evolved from the way you guys shot this one-off $18 million movie and how you thought you would be received by audiences to the way it ultimately became three movies in. I guess if you look at anything, I mean, the other director friends I have that have done a sequel to their own film or have jumped in for a few sequels afterwards or something like that, evolution doesn't happen in a vacuum. Meaning John Wick, it's a rare case. The first one, we never expected to do anything and it got a bit of a fong, so we did a second one. But we wrote the first one with zero intent on making a second one. We made the second one with zero intent on doing a third one. Now we've done a third one with zero intent on making a fourth one. I think that's helped us a lot. One of my biggest influences is Sergio Leone. And if you watch his three spaghetti westerns uh, for a few dollars more, a fistful of dollars and good, the bad, the ugly. And you can always add in the fourth one, Once Upon a Time in the West. But if you stick to the three Clint Eastwood ones, you can tell that like, Look, it's kind of the same character, but it's not really the same guy. And it's not really the same story. Leone had the same kind of thing. He thought he'd never work again. So he kind of wrote one, then he wrote another one, then he did another one. I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't try to hold too true to a John Wick, if there is such a thing, a John Wick theorem or axiom about where we're supposed to go or what we're supposed to do. Just like everything else, as you do a movie or as I'm sure as you do anything in your life, you get hopefully better each time you do it or you try to learn a little bit more or just life influences what you do in art. You know, my life personally has changed quite a bit since I did the first John Wick. I've experienced a lot more things, have the opportunity to see more things. And because the Wicks have done well, I've had the opportunity to meet different people and experience different things with crew and have, you know, everything from the technical side of things change to the creative side of things change and been able to talk to more people that have ideas where it could go. And because you do more of a crowdsourcing vibe to the thing, it opens your mind to a lot of stuff. As we sit down to write the next John Wick, it's not like some of these other franchises where you have to hold true to the comic or the graphic novel. The great thing about John Wick is there's no previous IP. It literally comes either from my head or Keanu's head, which is sometimes scary. But it's kind of like 
if I'm in a personal space, like it was in the last one where I was really into Westerns again, and really into, so we're like, we're putting John Wick on a horse. We're going to have this showdown kind of mentality. And because I had bumped into a guy, I was a big Game of Thrones fans for a while there. So I want to know who trained the wolves in Game of Thrones. It ended up being the Scottish man called Andrew Simpson. And I ended up just out of respect calling him and saying, hey, I'm a big fan of your work. He's like, I'm a big fan of yours too. We should do more dog stuff. And I was like, okay, here's my ideas for dog stuff. And he took that and we ended up getting five Belgian Malawans and trained him to do the sequence that you saw in the last film. So I guess as I expand, as my world expands, the John Wick world expands, maybe not always in bigger or better, but certainly in more intricate and more mythological. Sometimes the themes are big, sometimes they're small. I guess as a a true north or an emotional direction or a, a compass in which to take the character, we rely a lot on Keanu for that. He's a very collaborative actor, more so than anybody else ever worked with. I usually write a big part of the story in the script, and then Keanu sits down, infuses his ideas, and literally writes nearly every word of dialogue for himself and where the character wants to go. So we kind of take our cues off his instincts for that, and that's always served us pretty well. So in the next one, it's the same thing. We sit down, we talk. Keanu's like, look, I really think I should be doing this, and this is where my character goes. And at this point, I'm really pissed off. At the same time, I'm tired. I want a home. I want to feel certain things. We take that, and we go back into the script and really try to develop the scenes and, I guess, the overall arc of the movie to fit that emotional journey. As I live and breathe, John Wick, the man, the myth, the legend. You're not very good at retiring. I'm working on it. What you're talking about is is the idea that to arrive at a finite product, there's a lot of conversation going in. And what I'm interested in asking you about is how you guys develop ideas and design action as a storytelling device. About it, you had this to say, Quote, we have a notebook and surround our office walls with ideas. When planning a sequence, we start with a beat sheet, but it's really the location scout that informs the way we go back and rewrite the action around the strengths of a location, close quote. And the catacombs in Rome in in Wick 2 are a great example of that. So there's such a variety of, of set pieces for each movie. You know, you got weather, locations, and vehicles, and you're trying to create a unique mix that the audience simply hasn't seen before. Like the horse chase in Wick 3, you guys are scouting in Central Park, come upon the stables, And that's how the idea comes about. So could you talk about what these creative conversations look like in regards to how you pitch your way through building ideas for a set piece? And ultimately, how do you decide which ones stay in this movie and which ones go in the notebook? It usually starts with me saying something in a room full of people staring at me like I'm mentally deranged, I guess. It happens many different ways. We have our notebooks and ideas that we've had. I mean, we've been doing choreography and action for over 20 years and I'd say 10% of that has actually been used. So there's a big storage bank of ideas. Martial art choreography, for example, is like fashion. Bell bottoms are in one year, they're out the next year. You know, mini skirts in, mini skirts out. Jiu-jitsu's in, MMA is in, karate's in, Muay Thai was in. So we, we try to stay ahead of the curve on that. And we try to invoke martial arts styles and combine them and make it, again, more of the Jackie Chan methodology of what's aesthetically pleasing, what moves make the character pop. You know, what makes it look like, okay, he's a mercenary or he's a martial art guy, he's a kung fu guy, that kind of thing. That's always a big concern where we deal with our cast. If I know I'm casting Jet Li, then the choreography is going to be different. That It starts with that. Like, what do I want to say with the character? If you're casting, you know, someone twice the size of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm going to choreograph a certain way. Not necessarily slow or powerful, but I'm definitely going to choreograph something. And then I build around that. There's no one way. We'll see a location. We'll go, okay. This is really cool. I love staircases. I want to break a lot of glass. 
okay, well, screw that. I'll just build an entire house out of glass. That way I can't hide my ninjas in it. And then it, that becomes both stunt. I have an idea that I want to break a lot of glass, but at the same time, conceptually, I want a building that exists where I can put ninjas in, but they can't ever hide because the whole building's glass. That's conceptual. Then I want a character that fucks with John Wick that uses light and dark to do that. And then as a director, I want to do everything practically and I don't want to do any VFX, so how do I adjust the lighting in that place? And that's how we built the glass house based on all those different concepts. Now, that originally happened because about five years ago, I walked into a place in Berlin, right, in Potsdamer Platz, uh, in the center of Berlin, and the entire building was made out of glass. And we were fucking around it and going, this would be a cool place to figure out some camera angles. Combine that with ninjas, combine that with swords, combine that with John Wick, where I can shoot glass, some breaks, some doesn't, and that's how you get the glass house. It's, again, it's an evolution of maybe a germ of an idea. We start with a couple. We'll go, okay, I'd say in the last John Wick, there's like three or four ideas we didn't use, just because we just don't have the time and the, and the budget to do. But, you know, we've always wanted to do a great underwater sequence. We've always wanted to do a great vehicular sequence in a different kind of environment with more hills like San Francisco. There's all these fire things that we'd like to still try that we have the technology to do. We just haven't found the right scene to put them in. But when we read a story and we figure out something that the character wants to do and how do we make this pop, oh, wait, we got that idea. And then we start developing around of how do we do it. In today's commercial environment, we have the digital world, we have the practical world, we have so many more resources than we had even 20 years ago to pull these things off, both practically and digitally. It's, it's kind of cool, much safer than back, back then, which is good. When you're coming up and you're trying to create action, really, uh, if you want to have good action, study everything but action. <laughs> it's all the life things that make action pop. If you can remember your favorite fight scene or favorite like that, you have to ask yourself, why is this good? Why does the audience like it? If it's a martial art fight, it's usually because of the people. You like watching Jet Li. You like watching Jackie Chan. You like watching Jason Statham. You like watching Keanu Reeves. Like, it's not an accident that them doing good choreography in a good way because they were trained with them doing their acting thing is appealing. Of course it's appealing. So that's always the first thing. And then if you put it in an interesting place and the choreography steps up and has an interesting concept behind it, like they're handcuffed or they're fighting with axes or something like then you start putting the props in. I think one of the biggest mistakes in action design today or with other stunt teams or stunt coordinators or even directors is they come up with this gag. Like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to fight with sledgehammers. Yeah. And that's the idea. And that's, all right, and what? and? Like, no, that's it. We're going to fight with zero gravity. Oh, okay, that's a gag. That's not a fight. That's not a scene. That's a gag. That's like saying you're going to wear a red shirt in every scene. All right, that's cool. But what are you saying? You're saying the character is monochromatic. You're saying the character is like Einstein that doesn't want to reserve any energy into putting any of the clothes. Like, what are you saying? Like, you can't just come up with this non-related gag thing. We're saying John Wick has been trained in everything. He's this, he's resourceful, he uses weapons of opportunity. We're saying something about his character that we don't have to go into exposition about, that put John in a room full of, you know, sewing needles, he's going to figure it out. We're trying to say something with all the gags that we do with him. Or we're trying to paint, in my mind, we're trying to paint a different world where all these things can happen and it's fun. And part of the reason you go to a John Wick movie is to see Keanu Reeves do wacky stuff. And at this point, it's no longer Keanu Reeves, it's literally John Wick coming up with these cool ideas. I think if you approach action design or choreography in that way, where it's not just a gag, where it's not just you're trying to impress the audience, but it's actually fun and you're trying to say something about the character, that's great. Now, how do you do that? Like, I want to shoot part of the next movie in Malta. I've never been to Malta, so I'm going to go to Malta and see if it's what I think it is from the internet. And then we'll go to Russia, and then we'll go to these other places that I want to go to and see if it's this. If it doesn't work, I'll redesign or we'll change locations. It's an ever-going evolution. Like, we were still designing the horse chase like the day before. We got the horses as good as we could, and then we're like, okay, 
you know, guess what? They don't love the trains anymore. For some reason, they just hated the trains above. So that kind of screwed us on some stuff and you have to adjust and make do. And you'll find out very quickly that horses don't like motorcycles. So we had to find electric motorcycles that didn't make sounds next to them. And then horses don't like you shooting guns by their ears. So we have to do silent kind of guns. And like, you just constantly R&D. The problem is when you don't, I guess, want to break the mold or you don't want to, you just do what's easy. That's why you see the same fights and the same mood and the same editing style in every movie because it's easy or the easiest of the processes. You know, when you're trying to do something different, yeah, you got to go figure it out because <laughs> no one's done it before. And I think that's what bites a lot of people in the ass. They just don't want to put the time in, really. Absolutely. And you're talking about, again, not just backing up action with character and story and emotion, but managing resources. And I wanted to ask you about that and your relationship with your first AD. Quote, when it comes to financial limitations, it's all about trading one kind of resources for another. Less shooting weeks may give you a larger set. The original WIC 3 was scheduled to shoot in 67 days, but we ended up shooting both principal and additional photography in 56, which blows my mind, but I'm gonna just breeze over it. So I was wondering how do you work your first AD to understand how many shooting days you're gonna have to allocate for each sequence, especially once you start running out of time and money, what gets our priority? And how do you try to create a schedule where you don't burn out your cast and crew by shooting relentless action back to back? Yeah, those are all good questions. It's a lot more than just the AD. John, my first AD, he's very tight with Jeff, my line producer, Jennifer, my UPM, Basil, my main producer. Like it's, I think a lot of directors go in, especially first time guys will go in and pay very little attention to the money. You'll have producers that tell you, don't worry about the money, we'll handle it. Yeah, no, fuck that. <laughs> money is your lifeline. If you just want to be the kooky, crazy, artistic, you don't understand my vision director. I don't care about money. Just give me what I want on vision. Yeah, maybe if you're at the level of Spielberg or Nolan, you might get away with that. But I don't know if you've watched some of Spielberg's movies. They're very, very tight. They're on budget. He shoots on day. Like, there's very little waste to him. Nolan, he goes big, but like, you know, he gets, a, even for 200 million, he gets a lot for that. Every good director knows that money is your lifeline. And there's only one person on the entire set that knows what the movie is. It's you. It's the director. I can tell you and explain to you what a tree is 10 times over, but when we all draw a picture of a tree, my tree is going to be different than your tree. So for anyone else to assume they know how to budget my film or tell me what I can and can't do in a day, or if I need 50 setups or 20 setups or 30 setups, that's it. Most directors can't make or have a hard time or decision-making hard decisions is a difficult thing. It's probably the most important thing for a director to do. Even if I make the wrong decision, I'm very fast with decision. I go, boom, this is what we're doing. Let's go. Because I know it's easier to correct the train once it's moving than indecision, which keeps everybody staring at the uh, the set with nothing going on. Being able to make fast decisions, being able to make hard decisions, being able to do that, being able to say six weeks out before I've even seen a location going, I can do this in three days. I just know, my team knows that everything is liquid. We do the best guess we can. And that budget and that schedule is guess. When you're dealing with big studio movies and you got 10 A-list actors on it that all have their schedules, it becomes a whole different animal. That's why I purposely don't do it that way because I can't control my schedule at that point. I am locked in. You know, this particular actor is only coming for these three days. And if anything changes and moves, I'm screwed. That's it. That's all I get. I avoid those situations at all costs. If I'm, and I have been confronted with those, you know, limitations when an actor said, look, I'm interested, but these are, and I was like, um, yeah, it's not going to work for me. You know, I need to say liquid. I need to, to somewhat stay where the creative process allows me time to think. If I don't have my shit together and I step on set, the entire day is spent catching up trying to make a day instead of being creative with the day. By the time I get there, my camera team, my producers, my accountants have all seen the rehearsals. We all know what it's going to take. I spend more money up front than most directors. Most guys spend, you know, eight weeks of prep. I'll do 16 weeks of prep my full crew. I don't know if you know, but most camera crews come in maybe a week before we start shooting, the cameraman. My cameraman comes six to eight weeks out. 
and they're at all the sub rehearsals. They're on the location scouts. Everybody knows what's going on, and everybody knows the problem, so they're anticipating. If you've never seen, you know, you go on a boat, you've never been on the ocean before, how are you anticipating what to have? That's how I get things done quicker and quicker and quicker. I spend a little bit more money in prep, with information and I trust my crews, both the cameraman to figure out, okay, well, you got to get all the water housings. You got to get the waterproof stuff. You got to do all this. But at the same time, the accounts are going, they're looking up, my producer looking up going, yeah, it's probably going to rain. So we should budget a rate. They're already being ahead of me. They're problem solving for me instead of getting there and reacting to shit. You always have to get a crew that's ready to react. You have to get a crew that you've explained things to, but you have to make sure they're good on the fly too. They know that we're going to change. And they know at the end of the day, they trust how I shoot knowing I'm either going to get it or I'm not. And when I'm going to be honest, I'll tell you, we're not going to get this budget two days and move it around here. I take a lot of pride and time to go into my budgets and understand where all the money's going. You know, how many additional wardrobe people or how many additional grips or electrics we're having for that week, how much lighting's costing. I, I go pretty big so I know what to trade. When you don't know and you push that stuff away, going, I don't have time for that. I just need to be a creative genius. You have no cards to play. You can't just yell and scream, I'm a crazy genius. This is, that doesn't work with studios nowadays. You, you have to be somewhat educated, just like in life. I'm sure you have friends that can't budget their checkbook, and you have friends that can. And the ones that don't obsess over it but can budget it are usually a little bit more successful in life because they know what the opportunity It doesn't mean you're money crazy. It just means I know that if I help manage money in a proper way and I have the right team to manage money in a proper way, I will get more cool shit on screen. <laughs> That's a simple equation. Understand it. Don't rely on anybody else. Try to get your vision out there as quick as you can so they can react to it. Be brutally honest with what you're going to do and what you can't do. And then, again, it's great people. I have an advantage over most directors. I was a department head and a second unit director for 20 years before I directed. I know all the ends. I know all the games, the politics, the stuff, how to, who to say, fuck you to, who not to, who to kiss ass, who not to. Like, you know the game. When you understand the game and how things really work, you don't isolate yourself from the money of the crew. You invest yourself into the crew. I want the best guys. I want the crews that I work with. I want the best people. I want the smartest people. I want the people that understand how I shoot and the ones that aren't afraid to tell me, hey, you're being an idiot or you're being really smart. I, I hope to be one of the most creative in the room, but I, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, I'm in the wrong fucking room. Like I, I need to, I want my crew to be there. Granted, I'm the director. I'm the guy steering the ship, but that doesn't mean everyone else is an idiot. And I think a lot of directors think that because you're the director, you have to have the answers and you're the smartest guy. You're not. The people I have do this all the time. I have to make them believe that I'm doing it slightly different for a reason. This is why I'm doing it. This is how we're supposed to do it. And this is how we're going to get it done. And if they back you, they're going to be more creative in how they work numbers and how they schedule I do hope that Mr. Wick finds his way to safety. He knew the rules, he broke them. He killed a man on company grounds for all. Do you expect him to make it out? $14 million bounty on his head. Every interested party in the city wants a piece of it. I'd say the odds are about even. I want to ask about your relationship with your cinematographer, Dan Lauschton. And the idea of finding beauty in frames, we were lucky that Dan was the first person we ever had on the podcast. And he was telling us, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was telling me that Crimson Peak, directed by Guillermo del Toro, may have been the movie that you saw that ended up offering him you know, the job on, on Wick 2. I've heard you talk about Caravaggio paintings as a source of inspiration. And I love how you guys use mirrors, glass, and reflections as a massive motif in the visual language of, of the franchise. So I was wondering, what did you see in Den Lauschten use of colors, frames, and, and lighting that capture your attention? And how do you guys try to merge your styles to shoot action in a way that feels emotional? Right. Yeah, I was first familiar with Dan's work for a movie he did way back early 90s called Brotherhood of the Wolf with Mark Dacascos. That's the first time I saw him. But like, I kind of followed his career. Like, you know, when you get into second unit directing, you start dipping your toe into first unit DP. You want to start assembling your crew. 
you know, like, who do you love? Who styles do you copy? I never thought I'd work with Dan. You know, I'm a big fan of Guillermo de Toro's, obviously. So you, you follow him and then you see, okay, well, Crimson Peak had just come out. And we're like, oh, like, look. What I love about Dan is, again, I love Renaissance painting. It's always been, gets me for some reason. So I thought whenever I was going to do a movie, this is the depth I wanted. But I wanted black. Dan's very good with layers and black. Dan is like the holy trinity. He lights in camera. Like when you walk onto a Lauston set, you're instantly going, wow, this is lit really well. You don't have to look through the camera to know it's lit well. Like, you know it's lit well. Even the naked eye can see it. And when you look through the lens, it's even more impressive. He's very good with composition. Like, if you look at Crimson Peak, it's always down a hallway. It's never into a flat wall. It's always got depth. His angles are always depth. No matter what it takes, he'll find a way to understand the blocking of what the director wants or what I want, and he'll find a way to position the camera to help me compose. I'm very, I think I'm very hands-on when I set cameras or set a frame. I love composition as well. Working with Dan only... For some reason, that fucking guy. No matter how cool I think my frame is, he always adds that extra 5% to it that makes it go, oh shit. And he understands lens. He understands how to achieve a visual image. If I describe him like, look, I want this long lateral converging line thing, but I really want to stand can out so it's a little guy in a big world, but I want depth, 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 depth. He'll break up all the black with red lights and green lights. He knows how to layer very, very well. He knows how to manipulate light and film something or light something in a way that gets across what I'm trying to say character-wise or world-building-wise. That's a huge thing. Not all cinematographers are like that. Lastly, he understands the technical side very well on how to achieve it. He can understand very quickly what lens, how to do it, what to do to achieve. I mean, I shoot really wide. I shoot long takes. You know, I'm a DP's nightmare, especially in action. You know, they can't use the telephotos. They can't use zooms. They can't hide lights to make the actor look good. So how do we do it? You see in Wix, we usually build the lights into the set pieces. We put LED strips. So we'll do practicals that actually fill the room. That's where Dan shines too. He's very creative. Like, okay, the glass house. Well, I can't put lights anywhere in the frame because you're going to see the whole thing. Let's just build them into the thing and we'll do this and we'll find out this. And okay, well, anamorphic lenses don't do lens fairs. We'll just get these little filters. We'll take some fishing line. And he's very good at uh, taking adversity and turning it into uh, an achievement. There's nothing, I tell him I want to do something underwater, I tell him I want to do something on motorcycles, I tell him I want to do it, but all practical. And he'll just stare at me for about five seconds and go, okay, cool. Like, that's not normal in our industry. Very few people, everyone likes to say they're cutting edge or they're doing that. Very few people in our industry want to put the time and effort into reinventing the wheel. And Dan's just quite the package deal. And the guy's got more energy than anybody I know, so. Let me ask you about that because it's, you know, we talked about the macro picture of, of schedule, but I'm interested in asking you how you like to manage time on set. You know, I will take, I hope it's okay for me to say, but I'll take the horse chase as an example. I heard that you guys were struggling to keep up with the number of setups once you started shooting. And as you were saying, you had to quickly readjust. And my mind is blown when I hear about the small ways you try and shave off time on set. You're replacing practical squibs and glass breaks with VFX because you're trying to avoid resets every time. So to me, what months of rehearsal that translate into longer takes, as you said, that to me feels like confident directing. So I was wondering how do you feel your own directing has evolved from WIC 1 to WIC 3? And what does this approach of longer takes has taught you about yourself as a filmmaker? Well, it kind of goes back to just life skills at that point. Look, if you're a contractor, if you don't know anything about what the electrician does, or what the plumber does, how are you an effective contractor? All right, like when I get into something, if it's my bright idea to put horses underneath the train track, like, I better fucking understand everything about horses, everything about trains, everything about cars, everything. So when shit goes wrong, and it will go wrong, there's never been a sequence I've done where something hasn't gone wrong. Whether weather's changed, like, literally, we got there after five weeks of rehearsing with the horses. The horses went, fuck you. The trains freaked them out. Didn't freak them out for four weeks. We get there, trains started running overhead, horses fucking shit themselves. So they weren't going to do it. So you can't, 
the horse isn't sag. You can't make the horse do fuck all anything. Like you got to deal with it. So what do you do? You get the train schedule. You go, okay, we got three minutes in betweens and you rehearse that. So we lost the first night, figuring out a process to overcome the adversity. And then you, you, know, you take the hill any way you can. And we figure it out. We re-choreographed. We figured out which horses were good, which ones weren't. We figured all that stuff. You just have to deal with it. But if I didn't understand what it took, what the horse was going on and what the hooves and how we lay down the mats and how, I would have just been the guy in the chair. As a director, you have to be involved hands-on in every single department in every single way. The technical evolution from first film to second to third, where you're learning more about everything. You're learning about the problems, the things that happen. You're learning about what you can and can't do in DI and with VFX. You're learning about how far you can stretch a dollar, how fast you can really shoot. And you realize that the movie you write is not the movie you shoot, which again, is not the movie you edit, and by far is not the movie you release. You'll go through an evolution of three or four films. You know, unless you're Fincher that, Previs is every single thing and you shoot at every single thing. That's good. But I, unfortunately, I like doing a lot of action movies with animals and kids and martial arts and things happen daily. So I have, I would say every bit of good a plan as most big time directors, but I just know shit's going to go, <laughs> go weird. And we've thought so hard and we've rehearsed so much that we have backup plans. We always ask the stunt teams and the camera teams, okay, that's great. We know we're all positive. We're definitely going to get it. But if we don't, what are we doing? And it'll always be the guy in the room that goes, ah, it'll never happen. It always happens. <laughs> you just have to get that. And then the confidence that you get, knowing that there's always more than one way to tell a story. And that's, you know, that separates, you know, directors. Like, who can tell stories with an image? Who says it with dialogue? Who can say it with, through the actors? There's all these different avenues to try and get your point, story, or what you're trying to say across. I'm mostly a visual guy, so I try to do mostly with visuals or reactions or looks from actors. Some people do it, like Tarantino writes a lot. His dialogue is really why you go to movies sometimes. He does exposition in a way that you don't mind its exposition. You kind of enjoy it. It's poetry. Then you have Leone or the Wachowskis or Zack Snyder, where imagery is everything. Imagery tells you what you should feel. Some guys do it with music. You know, music tells you what to feel. And it's constantly a director's, I think, job to experiment with all these different ways, knowing that, okay, if I don't get all my horse chase, okay, I, what I'll do is I'll get this. I'll get Ken falling off saying a funny horse line. The horse will kick the guy, and then he'll look, say a quick little line, or just get the horse to look. The horse will look at him, and we'll walk. You just have to have confidence that you can figure it out. Because, again, the last thing you ever want to do is walk onto a set and try to make your day. That's the biggest mistake in Hollywood. That's why we did so well as second unit directors and why we made such a good living is everybody, no one could make their day. And instead of making a day, you should be worried about being creative. Like how this, you gotta remember what other art form, you have all this time to rehearse a song before you record it. You have all this time to rehearse a play before you do it. You have all this time to paint. You can take off your scratch pad and start again. 99% of the time, when you walk onto the set for the first day, the first day in like a sequence, that is the first day that everybody who knows something is stepping onto that set. A few people, the director, maybe the DP have stepped on it a few times, but the actor's never seen it before. Stunt guys have never seen it before. Cameraman never seen it before. And like, there's just like, you're walking off of the, and the actors, because they're two big time people that have different schedules, they may have just met that morning, you know, in the hair and makeup trailer. So that's the first time they're stepping on us. That's your first one. So now let's get this straight for 150 million. We're just going to fucking wing it on day one. That's literally what you're doing. The director thinks he's got a story, but he's got a shot list, but like, Okay, the dialogue doesn't work because the actress isn't playing it the way or the, the actor's not playing it the way. Should. Okay, well, it doesn't fit. Now the actors feel they're getting self-conscious that it, the dialogue's not working for them. And you're like, oh, the DP hasn't lit it right, so you're waiting three hours for him to light the other side because you want to reverse because the other actor's not out of hair and makeup yet. Like, it's a clusterfuck. 
Back in the old days, like you'd get there and you'd spend days figuring it out. They might come back and reshoot the scene again. Jackie Chan will sometimes take a month to shoot a fight scene because they just, it's not clicking. They got to figure it out. So they go shut down. The, budgetarily, we can't do that the way we do things, the way we have locations and actors and stuff now. But in order to head that off, I, again, try to get everybody I can on those sets or in the environment as close as I can way before that happens. I cast actors like Halle Berry gave me nearly six and a half, seven months of her life to shoot for five days. Like, that is not normal. But because of that, when she got there, all these things, like the dogs, they all of a sudden we found out, like, the city of Morocco kicked us out, so we had to be somewhere else. We're in a different city. Now they had a thousand cats everywhere. But if she wasn't so training, her and Keanu haven't dialed in, I couldn't have done that entire sequence in three days. But because everyone's so dialed in, everybody's ready for adversity. Everybody's ready for that. You should be spending your days being creative and making the scenes better, not trying to make a day when you've never rehearsed a scene before. So I try to get my actors in a week before to meet in a hotel, and we sit, we do reads. We try to get everybody comfortable, so it's all high fives and how you doings, and everybody kind of knows what their gig is. So instead of putting on the weapon belt or the wardrobe for the first time, they've had time to digest the character. If you don't do your prep or you don't do your creative prep, if you haven't done that or an acclimation to a scene, you are literally figuring out there on the day. No matter how much prep you think you've done, you've never actually seen it done. And that's where everybody spends half that first day just figuring out the shit they should have walked in with. And then it's a catch-up. And now we're just trying to get 20 setups to make the scene so we have enough to make a scene. And hopefully you get something good. And that separates, obviously, the, the experience from the novice. But there's so many things that go into it. Like, I'm often amazed, especially directing now, that there are good movies. There's so much shit that happens and so many problems, so many issues. It's amazing we get good films at all. You know, we're just trying to up the percentage of good to bad, like most of the directors I know. It's a lot. No one starts a movie going, let's make a shitty movie, guys. Everybody, from the smallest or let's just say less ethical producers to the most studio. Like everybody wants to make a good movie. Everybody that's, I've never met anyone in this industry that wanted to make a bad movie. Some people didn't care. They're a little apathetic, but like everyone wants to make a good movie. So why are there so many bad movies, you know? And you're like, it's the same thing. There's just a lot of logistics that go into it. And you try to improve on the logistics. You try to improve on problem solving. It's just like life. Your first relationship goes a little wonky, but you learn something. Second time you're just, okay, Put down the toilet seat. Got it. Check that box. Be understanding. Listen. Don't just fake listening. Try to listen. Okay. Good. Moving on. And that's like directing. You try to check boxes as you go, knowing that each individual film, each individual day is different. Be ready to adjust, but try to understand where the issue is coming from. That's all. Uh, I, I can't say more about it other than it's just like life. You kill Santino. The Camorra and the high table come for you. He's offered $7 million for your life. Seven million dollars is a lot of money, Mr. Wick. So I guess you have a choice. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? Somebody please get this man a gun. My last question to you regards to your love for classical action and your legacy for the work to come. My last quote for today, quote, John Wick is an ode to our favorite films, from Kurosawa to Sergio Leone, from Tarkovsky to the classic Bond films, from color, sound, and music, all I set out to do with Wick was making a beautiful action film, close quote. So to me, Chad, that's why I think the reason John Wick shines as an action franchise, because you went ahead and offered the audience something new by creating your own tone. You know, this is action that's violent, but spectacular. It's hyper real, but elegant. 
So over the last 28 years in the business, what have you learned about the kind of movies you want to make? And what has the conversation been like with yourself in regards to the work you've produced and the work you're still looking to produce? Well, let's start with producing first. Producing has been, I mean, it's challenging. It's, it's fun, but it's, look, there's really good people out there. The industry is hard enough to get into when you're really experienced, you know a lot of people. Producing gives you the opportunity to go out and dig, just like we used to go out and recruit our stunt teams. We find these really talented kids on YouTube or in the gyms and we pull them out and we train them to be stunt guys. There's something really interesting about that to me for both projects and for directors. Find directors that maybe don't have quite the vision yet, but have massive potential. I have somebody that has a vision, but can't quite get it out because they're not a great people person or they're not good in the room pitching or something. So that I would always love to try and assist that, especially when people are really unique because I like being entertained. I hope that we find more directors that make stuff that makes me go, holy shit, I never thought of that. That was awesome. And then there's the project thing. There's some good scripts out there that just need the right. I mean, we always joke, like every script we read is a broken toy. It's just how much work do you want to put into fixing the toy to make it great? Now you can take that broken toy and make it special. You can make it just work. So it's the average old thing, or you can find somebody really special and put it with that really special toy and they click. The puzzle of it all to put creative genius together is super enticing because I know for a fact, I've witnessed it. There are many people out there way smarter and way more creative than I am. For whatever reason, I'm on this path and I can help them get to a place much further along the road than I ever will get to. So that's interesting to me. That's just my my vibe as a, as a coach and a trainer from my my athletic and martial art background, it feels like you should always try to make the next generation better. I still teach classes and I always hope that the guys are going to be better than I ever was and my click was. And it's the same with producing. I want the next group to be better than we ever were and to create something different. So again, it keeps that cycle of like, as a director, look, man, I, I know I say it all the time. Like Wick is zero filter, man. Like 99% of that movie are, are all my choices. So if you love them, okay, that's me. If you hate them, okay, that's me. I have, I can't blame it on time, money, people, actors, writers. I, that's that's me. So the dialogue, if you don't like it, that's, yeah, I, I, I said I liked it. The colors, the choices, everything in that is, other than maybe running time that I've had to cut a few things out because of mandates from other powers that be, but that's me. Like, I like colors. I like funny, quirky stuff. I like odd tone shit. I like Westerns. I like martial arts. I like swords. I like ninjas. I like classical music. I like rock and roll. I like motorcycles. I like muscle cars. That's what goes into that. So if I can keep making movies that turn me on that much, I'm stoked. I'll finish the John Wick franchise. And then I love this property called Highlander. I'm a true romantic. I love romantic stories. I love the, the idea and the philosophical and ethical implications of immortality. I love sword fighting. I love the art of dueling. I love that whole romantic side of things. I love history. So I'll be able to jump through time periods and do fight scenes with guns, cars, and swords with people that can't die unless you chop off your head. Plus, I love the idea of tragedies. I love love stories. I love well, we watched the movie Togo the other day that chokes you up. Like, you know, I want movies that make me cry. Like, why else am I going? Like, if you don't make me laugh, you don't make me cry, or maybe go, wow, I don't know what I'm doing. So anything that evokes those kind of emotions, hey, I'm in. Now, there's a hundred other kind of films that I like, but I'm not going to direct. Like, I love comedies. I love dramas. I'm just not, that's not what draws me, and I don't think that's what I'm great at. Not that I wouldn't mind taking a stab, but we all have these short lifespans and short careers, so the things I'm going to do are things that really excite me, and things that I think I can do a little maybe better than the average director out there, you know? Like, I think I can do action really well. I think I can tell weird campfire mythological stories pretty well. And I think my mindset is weird enough where I might be able to give something that's a little bit off-center that could entertain people. So I'm probably going to stay with world building because I like that. I just, the idea to create entire worlds from your head is great. The idea is that everything should be beautiful has been in my head, instilled in my head since 
my mom is very artistic. My, my grandfather was very artistic. I come from a very athletic, artistic family. And the whole purpose of really anything is the same. I was like, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. So if you, you know, from the time you wake up, if you tie your shoes right, you know, you'll drive to work right. If you drive to work right, you'll do work right. Everything you do should be good. You should try. And by that same note, I'm a big Nietzsche guy. So it's like, you know, the purpose of life is art. If you're not trying to make it beautiful, what are we doing? I just don't want to hack through something to get across this artistic notion of grittiness. Like I can make gritty look beautiful. <laughs> you know, I think blues can be gritty. I think reds can be gritty. I don't think it all has to be washed out gray. But if that's someone's directorial choice, I totally respect it. It's just, you know, we have those guys. I think I'd like to be the guy that tries to put a little shine on everything. You can look at a wall, you can look at a baseball, you can look at a cup of water, and there's certain angles and certain lighting effects you do to make that thing look like the best cup of water on the planet. So if I'm going to shoot a cup of water, it might as well be the best looking fucking cup of water that you've ever seen. That's what I want to do. I've seen great action done poorly, and I've seen poor action done really, really well. So I just figured, well, if I'm going to spend all this time and I spent the last 30 years of my life getting here, I might as well make every single frame a painting, you know? And that's why I think Dan and I click so well. Like Dan can't help himself. Dan, if you ever see Dan even arrange his food in a plate, it's gotta be aesthetically pleasing. He can't stand things that are arranged in a way that could be beautiful and are not. I think Dan looks at everything. I've never seen a guy change a simple iPhone photo to be something so special. And to collaborate with people like that, like. That would be my goal, collaborate with great artistic people far better than, than I ever will be and try to put my ideas into their little bubble and see what gestates and comes out. I mean, otherwise, why are we here, right? Couldn't have put it better myself. Chad, you've been so generous with your time. I, I truly can't thank you enough. I am so glad we got to talk to you. And there you have it, folks. Thank you to Chad for taking the time to call in. To Mortimer PR, who was so cool in setting this conversation up, and to Eric for doing all of the final mixing on these episodes. If you enjoy our program, please help us by taking a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send your favorite episode to a friend to help fellow cinephiles and new listeners find the show. I'm Brando Bennetson, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.